Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Many women will always nominate one or two men as mentors, partly because for many of us, there were so few women about. My guest today doesn't claim to be my mentor, but he has always been at the end of the phone, especially when it's involved tricky negotiations. Jeffrey Brown is the chair of the Collingwood Football Club. He started out as a lawyer and today also chairs MA Financial Group and Walkinshaw Group. In this episode, we talk about the transformation of the Collingwood Football Club, how to create a winning culture, and a recent health battle. Jeff Brown, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Now, I want to be gracious here as a Crow Hawk Swan supporter. Congratulations on winning the flag. How can you barrack for three teams? What does that say about you? Well, Helen? I know, and it's a trick question. It's a trick because I, I have a good excuse. You do? Why? What can be an excuse <laughs> for divided loyalties? Uh, well, my brother played for Hawthorne. I grew up in Adelaide. Got to be a crow if you grew up in Adelaide. Crows entered the AFL while I was a reporter at Channel 7 in Adelaide, and then I moved to Sydney. And if you want to be an AFL fan, you have to follow a Sydney team, and the only team when I moved to Sydney were the Swans. Well, let me extend an invitation to you to come to Collingwood one day and let me attempt to convert you while you're in Melbourne. Look, it must have been a career high, and you've had a pretty impressive career. Can you describe what it meant to be as the chair of Collingwood and to win that flag? Well, it was um, was a great thrill. It was... The result of two years of work reshaping the club. We have an outstanding coach and an outstanding group of athletes, both men and women athletes in our club. But we need to straighten up on the administrative side, our marketing effort, our leadership effort, our media and comms, our membership support, our events. And uh, that required quite a bit of work to reshape that, involved bringing in some senior people who... I'd work with and known from elsewhere. Some people had to go. And um, by bringing in senior people who I'd worked with and trusted and knew their capabilities, it it provided a great fill-up for the younger people in the administration. And he said business, football's not a business, it's, it's some combination between business and entertainment and passion. And younger people really stood up in the face of, you know, great leadership around the floor and um, none of those young people let me down, neither did the appointments. And, and that gave us the strength. And to give you an idea of that, um, last year we made, as a, as a club, one of the 
strong football clubs, like uh, an underlying profit of $50,000. So we've just announced um, the result for 2023 and we've booked $5 million. So, so I say to the players, that's my scoreboard. Uh, that's not a bad scoreboard. Look, I want to explore today what it means to build a winning culture, not just in a club, but in an organisation. For all the listeners who might not be as familiar with your career or don't read Rear Window, could you just give us a little bit of a potted history of your career? Well, I started off as a, a I trained as a lawyer and um, I developed a, a practice which was fairly novel at the time. In sports law, I really wanted to bring the law to what I was interested in, not be dragged to where it wanted to um, pigeonhole me. Um, I'm not being critical of people who do personal injuries litigation or wills and probate, but that wasn't for me. So I could see the growing professionalism in sport and saw the need for legal support for that in terms of contracts, negotiations and so forth. And originally was a partner in a larger law firm set out on my own not long after that. And I then became the lawyer exclusively for the AFL for 22 years until I left the law to go to Channel 9, or yes, mm-hmm. Channel 9 then, or which is PBL Media, which was still owned by James Packer. I went as support for Eddie McGuire and he became the CEO. Not long after Eddie went back to an on-air role, David Gingell came in from Granada television in Los Angeles. David and I are very good friends. I came to Melbourne, did a project here to sell the old property and studio at Bendigo Street, Richmond and move it into and create a new digital studio in the Docklands. And when I'd completed that, David was promoted to CEO of the group of companies, the the PBL Media Group of companies, which included one of your favourites, CP Magazines, the uh, joint venture we had Microsoft and the stadium, which I think now is QDOS Arena or something like that. So um, David asked me to go back to Sydney and and run the network, which I did do, and um, did that for three years until 2013. In that time, I, I actually sat on the car sales board as a representative of the the nine interests. I'm chairman of the Walkinshaw Automotive Group, which is the largest automotive remanufacturer in Australia and have been on that board for 20 years and I've been chairman for 12. Um, so the other thing I need to clarify, you were never actually my boss. No. No, I was wondering about that. Who has ever been your boss, Helen? <laughs> uh, let's talk about winning culture. It was something that was talked about at nine and it was a concept that David Gingell, I think, used to talk about to all hands, you know, to big group events. And it is certainly what you've created at Collingwood. Can you tell me what that means to you? Well, I think a winning culture, you know, it's a, it's a slogan, but what it really means is it's a symbol of pride in individual performance and a willingness to help others around you get better. I think mutual trust and confidence underlies success in business or sport. And in order to do that, and I say at Collingwood or the public company which I chair and I've just come to you from a board meeting of MA Financial as a group, I challenge everyone to come to work every day wanting to do a PB and wanting to help the person beside them do a PB. So if you do your best and you help others to do their best, that creates a sense of pride and 
and you want to win and you keep wanting to get better. And if you keep getting better, provided you've got good structures around you, senior leaders to guide you, a good plan, and you execute your plan with, with discipline, then you'll be a winner. And people like winners and winning is a, is a good, fulfilling feeling. All right, we'll come back to winning, but in terms of encouraging people to come to work and do their PB and, and to help the person next to them do their PB, what do you do to communicate that? Is that a communication strategy or is that a do as I do, not a... It's both. It's, yeah. You've got to be an example to people. You know, you've got to be confident as a leader. You've got to make decisions. You take advice. There are so many so-called leaders I see that just take endless advice and never really end up making a decision or make a compromised one. You're better to make decisions in my view, even if you get a few wrong, but just be decisive. I think people really rally to that sort of leadership. Instill confidence in themselves, talk to them, give them the benefit of your experience and whatever skills you have, identify their skills and help them build that, encourage them. Some might make it, that's a fact, and you need to deal with that. But most people really respond to reaching out and offering that sort of support, particularly if you bring a kit bag of skills and experience. Most people, I think, are, are willing to learn. So if you're willing to teach, I think creates a good environment for everyone to improve. And I learn lots from younger people. I'm from a generation where there's another generation now merging as leaders in the workforce, and I get great energy from new age thinking. And um, that's probably kept me relevant in the business world. So let's take a typical Jeff Brown day. How much of your day is spent reaching out to other people and offering support? And I'm going to take a guess here, are people reaching out to you looking for support? Yeah, both of those things. Like, yeah. like today I started my day with a committee meeting of the nomination remuneration committee for MA Financial and we chopped a fair bit of wood this morning as we're going through compensation, bonus time. Um, what does that mean, chopping wood? Well, it, it means that um, you've got to assess everybody's performance, allocate appropriate remuneration to their effort, both to retain them and incentivize them. Pretty tough in a, a financially difficult environment, so it requires a lot of skill and judgment and explaining to people why you may fall short of their expectations in some cases because we have to be, as an employee or an executive, responsible for the overall performance of the company. And it's it's a tough market out there. There's not many companies that have done really well in the last 12 months. It's been very challenging, particularly for companies in the financial services business, in the engineering business, a little bit easier because um, um, we fill pre-orders. So, so structuring that to provide appropriate remuneration, be able to explain that so you can retain your best employees. So that means you reached out to people? Like you're doing the communication? No, we've actually settled on the plan today, what was the structure, and we will go back and now discuss those with the people. And so you personally spend good amount of time talking to individuals? No, I don't personally because... um, Although last week I, I met with all the senior executives in, in that listed business. Um, we have a chair of the remuneration and nomination committee, Alex Goodfellow, who's a very talented executive. Um, she's also the vice chairman of Corn Ferry Australasia. She'll spearhead that and work with our people and culture 
people together, our CEO and our joint CEOs to go and communicate that. Uh, I'll get regular feedback on that. Rarely would I need to intervene, but I, I would always be prepared to if I needed to. But I'm just trying to get a sense of how much time you spend reaching out to people, and, I'm, and I accept that you're not dealing with the... Um, the executive team of an organisation, but you are dealing with your direct reports I at, am dealing, a, at a significant... Well, a, as chairman, um, I think it's really important, and even as a board director, to understand the difference between the governance responsibility that comes with that and the management functions which are ultimately responsible to you. It's dangerous for board members to get involved in management issues and to get down into that because it sends mixed messages. We have joint CEOs in that business whose responsibility is to run the business. They bring the issues back to the board table that need to be dealt with. But it is important and, and I really value the relationship, the business relationship I have with the senior executives in the business. And I know the CEOs don't mind at all if I sit with them occasionally just to take their feedback, see how they're traveling, see how their teams are going, see what sort of support the board could offer, see whether my board's fulfilling their expectations as executives. So in your messaging, going back to your PB um, analogy, do you find yourself being a bit like, you know, Scott Morrison and Stop the Boats? You know, you're constantly bringing the team back to the reason you go into work every day? Or is that just a culture that you've created um, more broadly around the way you lead? I think it's me. I think it's my personality. I wouldn't like um, to be myself with Scott Morrison. <laughs> I didn't but, mean to do that. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I was talking about that, you know, the politician tendency to kind of you know, need to repeat things all the time in order for it. And, it's you know, it's a leadership thing. Well, repetition, you don't get marks for repetition. You get marks for impact, whether you say it once, twice or four times. But, you know, I grew up, I've had a working class background. You know, I I wasn't the typical law student. I had no one from my family in the law. I did an arts degree first and studied literature and for a very short time was a, an English teacher. And, you know, that experience was quite fundamental to my level of understanding of what happens in this world and in, in my life because if you study poetry or the plays, for instance, you realise that words can be used to convey meanings that are quite different to what they may first appear to a literal reader. So that taught me a lot about negotiation and how to um, convince people, bring people on side and motivate people. Do you think there's any difference between creating a, a winning culture in a, a footy club or a financial institution? No, I think the elements are pretty much the same. I think you've got to have pride in your own performance and you've got to care about the people around you. That's got to be supported by the, the company or the club um, in relation to a good plan, in relation to, you know, Collingwood, the game plan devised by our coaching staff led by Craig McRae was a very fast, innovative style, quite different to what Collingwood had played before. You know, believing in yourself right to the last minute. We won so many close games over two years. It, it can't be a fluke. It's, it's actually what we were trained for. We sort of welcomed the close ones because we had plans to either lock the game down or, or to go wide or to go in, you know, down the corridor depending on uh, what the circumstances were. So all that was quite carefully drilled into the players. And I think um, with the team in, a, in the financial services company or an engineering company, you need to have a, a business plan that everyone buys into that is successful and rewarding. You take over a, a new board, a new business. 
What are the key things you look for and, and what are the couple of things that you do? Well, but I, I do the things you had just asked me before I took it over. I'd actually go and speak to the people and I'd find out what their motivation was, what the culture was, what they all wanted to achieve, um, make some assessment of their talent, their energy, their commitment to success. Success isn't everything, but you know, success in the workplace can be incredibly fulfilling if you if you make it such and reward people for that. Everyone has a life outside of their working life or outside of their football club, and we should encourage that too to and help people uh, achieve as much as they want to in their private life by giving them the time, the incentive, you know, the tools, the self awareness, the pride in themselves to do better, no matter what they do. A lot of those things you can learn in the workplace and take to a lot of other places. I mean, PwC, that was a winning culture and it's in a all manner of pain right now. So winning culture can go off the rails. It can go off the rails. I, I don't know enough about that example. I, I know the former CEO who's a, a good friend of mine and also chairman of the Carlton Football Club, but I think what happened in that case is that one person or a small group did something that was contrary to the the rules and guidelines of the firm and, frankly, contrary to what a reasonable person would expect as a standard of behaviour. And that's been allowed to, I'm not surprised and it's not unfair, been allowed to pollute the reputation of the firm, but I'm sure there are many good people working there who have worked very well and very honestly for a long period of time who are being unfairly tarnished by that. So... You know, as the old saying, it's, you know, one bad apple spoils the barrel and that can happen. You've got to be really careful and that's why no matter what you do for all of the other apples in the barrel, you've got to make sure that one rotten apple doesn't get in there and infest the great culture that you've created. What are you best at, do you think? Um, that's really for others to say. What I what I really like doing, I really like people, I really like talking to people, I like motivating people. I like motivating people, skilling people and bringing them to a successful outcome and that applies in lots of other things that I do. What leadership qualities do you have and what aren't you that good at? Well, leadership, as I said earlier, it's about talking to people, being decisive, having a good plan, communicating, being shown to be strong and decisive, committed, actually believing in what you do. And back to my television days, Ray Martin recently told me he, he that Sir David Attenborough said to him once when Ray asked him why he was still doing this at 90-something years of age and... The response was, well, at my stage in life, you don't do the things that you like doing because you like too many things. You don't do the things that you don't like doing, but you do the things you're passionate about. And the things that I apply myself to, and I get asked to do a number of different things, the things that I apply myself to, those areas that I mentioned, yeah, I'm passionate about it. If you're passionate about it, you want to succeed and you want to help others succeed. Um, what I'm not good at, marriage. <laughs> Still time. <laughs> I'm running out of time. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about um, the the profile of being a, a CEO or a chair. You've worked in 
organisations where there's very famous people. In Collingwood, Eddie Maguire, of course, was as big a name as a Dacos. And at nine, I won't name the nine stars because they probably wouldn't want me to, but, you know, you've seen what fame and profile looks like up close. What have you learned about a public profile? And is it something you have ever sought in this role or is it something you've deliberately tried to keep on the down low? Well, I haven't sought it, nor have I deliberately tried to push it away. If if you become the president of Collingwood Football Club, there's a certain amount of notoriety or that attaches to that. And you'll you'll need to make statements, you'll need to speak to the press, you need to speak to the players. It's part of the job. Do I enjoy that? I don't dislike it. It's part of the job of communicating with the 106,470 people who've paid their money to be members of the Collingwood Football Club. They need to hear uh, from me about the club and how we're going. Yes, I've worked with many famous people and um, they're basically all the same, but they they do get um, occasionally caught up in the, in the public profile and worry perhaps too much about whether they're up or whether they're down in the polls. And I can understand that because in order to have a successful career in a public-facing role, you need to remain popular. But the reality is no one remains popular for all time in entertainment or in the sport. Footballers come and go. People on television come and go. And as people do go or leave or their, their star dims a bit, guess what? new people pop up and take the mantle and, the, and it renews itself. And um, some of the people you mentioned, like Eddie's had an outstanding career in in sport and now television production and continues to. Um, some of the people at Nine, like one of the, well, the most admired executive I work with, David Gingell, I still talk to him regularly. You know, his wife Layla was a, was a great asset to the Nine Network. People like Liz Hayes, Amanda Lang, who you know, who who worked there originally as legal, who, who, who stepped into administrative role now with Fox Sports. They've, had, they've had, all had amazing careers. Um, and we did do an amazing interview with Amanda Lang and I'm pretty sure um, she mentions you as a mentor in terms of negotiation and I'm going to come to that in a minute. I'm just interested though, before we leave the fame question, is what advice do you have for, you know, you can see the kid come into the club or you can see the the new hotshot banking executive and you know that their star is just going to take off because they've just got that X factor and you know what's going to happen. Like, you know where this story goes. It's like the Beckham documentary, right? It's just, or the Robbie Williams one. Um, do you take the time to go, listen, John, you've got a wild ride ahead of you, but here's some things that, you know, be good to think about before it goes pear-shaped? Yeah, I think that uh, anyone starting off on a career doesn't want to know about no. the end of their career, <laughs> so you've got to encourage them. But my best advice is to really enjoy it, you know, to love what you do, to make the most of it. And um, recently, uh, before the preliminary final uh, this year, I sat in front of my players, both the women and the men's group uh, at Collingwood, and... Um, I told them of my cancer diagnosis and um, the reason I did that was not to motivate them or to have any, for them to feel sorry for me, but, you know, we're all in it together. We need to tell each other if we've got issues. And, you know, I simply said to the men's team 
uh, just before that preliminary final, I said, you wake up every day and you think your future is unlimited. You think the sun's going to shine every day as brightly as it has before. But I said, that can change really quickly. And it changed for me. It can change for you. So what I can say to you or the advice I can give to you or the example I am sitting in front of you is make the most of every opportunity you have today because you can't be guaranteed to get another one tomorrow. I assume they won because they won the grand final. They did win. Has the cancer diagnosis changed your thinking about anything? No, it hasn't really changed me. It's, um, I think um, when you confront your mortality, there's a, a sort of a, a heightened sense of honesty that sort of descends on you, you know, no more time for bullshit. Like, you just got to tell it like it is. I think I've been like that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, my... Uh, my motivation now is to get as much done as I can do that I think is important in whatever time I have to achieve what I can achieve. So you're, um, h- how do those conversations go when you're moving, you're moving fast, right? You, you want to get, you want to achieve a lot. So you've got someone that's in the way. It's not right for the team. It's not right for the culture. You know, how do you navigate those difficult conversations against the backdrop of what you're experiencing at the moment? Um, well, if you're talking about people who come across that are underperforming or that not fitting in with your plan, you've got to explain to them that they're not fitting in and some people will never accept that explanation. You've got to do something about it. You've got to some, move some people out of the way. And that will inevitably be the case in some cases, but not until you've given everybody a everyone an opportunity to buy into your vision, to share your energy for what needs to be achieved. So someone's underperforming, you've just joined the company or the club, you pull them in and you hear them out. Yep. And then you see where they go. Yeah, and then you watch them and you help them. Some people get affected by other things happening in their life and um, um, that's understandable. Others just don't have the motivation or the energy or commitment that that you want in your organisation, that you try and symbolise as a leader of your organisation and give them a chance, but if they fall short, then you need to move them. Has your mortality being questioned changed anything in that timeline? Um, it's it's, it's re-emphasised to me, the importance of the love and support of my family and my friends. And I've had amazing people rally around me to give me comfort and support as I step through this you know, next issue, and that's how I said next issue. And have I learned to appreciate that more? I think I, I always appreciate but I haven't been forced to stop and really recognise the great value of that in this life that we lead for so long as we're given time to lead it. I will say, without being too sentimental, that um, the thing that was said about you to me from the moment you turned up in my orbit, which was, as we touched on before, you came into Nine, I was at ACP Magazines, I didn't directly work for you, but you're a very senior figure in the organisation, was how strongly people felt about you, that you are, are very much what you have just articulated that you do believe in helping others and that it's very much part of your success in leading. So you are greatly loved, Jeff Brown. Um, can I 
go to negotiating before we get too sentimental. You are a master negotiator, everyone. You're a good bloke who's really good at negotiating is kind of the tabloid version of who you are. Um, Tell me about what negotiation means to you and why you're good at it. Um, Well, what negotiation means is, is a pathway to achieving the outcome that you ideally seek. And negotiations are different, some are similar, Really, are they the same? They can be heated, they can be constructive, professional, they can be really destructive in some cases. But it's about uh, timing, patience and understanding. And I, I recently spoke at the Forbes Business Summit and I, I was asked a similar question about negotiation and I, I went back to an example that I, I think uh, Bob Hawke gave in the 80s when he was Secretary of the ACTU and it was about two people standing on a beach and one person says to the other, looking out to sea, hey, that, that person's drowning and there's a person out there shouting out help and waving their arms around, splashing. And, and um, person A says to the person B, we, we need to swim out and grab that, save that person. Person B says, no, 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 no. Said, you swim out now while he or she's flapping their arms around. We swim out there now, both of us. We'll get caught up in that. We'll all get dragged down, right, because there's a hell of a fracas going on right there, and we'll all drown. So just stand back, let them flap their arms around for a little bit longer, and when they're really tired, then we'll just swim out and ping them back in. So that's about negotiation. It's about timing. And it's about letting people get things out. I think, um, you know, negotiations get heated. You've got to put everything on the table. You know, when I was uh, a young lawyer, I found that, you know, I used to sit in very large boardrooms from large law firms, from people in pinstripe suits much older than me. And, you know, I used to say fuck every now and again. And it really made them uncomfortable. And, you know, I felt that if I could unsettle them, you know, I could actually get something out of them. So, um, <laughs> language again. So I'm sorry. You probably have to. <laughs> no, beat no, that no, out. no, not, not, not me yeah. uh, chastising you, but the use of language for, yeah. an, outco- for an outcome. Yeah, well, Language is a great tool and it goes back to my early days of studying literature where I know how powerful language can be. You know, what you say can be almost as important as what you do because what you say influences what other people do. And I've often said, I don't care what people think of me, but I do care about what they think of what I think. And that's not arrogance, it's just that, and I may be wrong, you know, I surely have been wrong. But, you know, I like to, to bring people to my vision and to help me achieve what I think is important and what I think will be an enjoyable journey for them. Uh, a couple of quick negotiation questions. When it gets heated, what do you do? Well, it depends if someone, you know, is getting heated emotionally and irrationally, you're probably best to leave them go. But if someone's really banging on hard about a good point and you don't believe it, then get emotional and meet them and give it back to them. And then when we're all finished shouting at each other, we'll probably walk away. We won't do much more that day, but we'll come back in a day or two and we'll pick it up. And I think you're better for getting all that out. If you feel angry about something, if you don't like what I'm saying to you, get it out. And then I'll explain to you why I think that. I remember ringing you for assistance on a negotiation that I was doing on a pay negotiation. And you went, what do you want? What are they offering? 
And he said, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Probably should get closer to that. You know, this is just a starting point. This is a negotiation. <laughs> I was like, it was like a penny drop moment for me. I assumed that the offer was final. And that was it. Yeah. And I didn't have any power to go back. Tell me, do you ever just walk away? Like, do you ever, or do oh, you? Sometimes I've walked away, but yeah. from my experience, anyone who makes a final offer to you is never a final offer. That's, um, um, I would never express an offer as a final offer. I'd, expre- I'd explain why I thought that was appropriate. And um, I think it's pretty dumb to say first and final offer. And you hear that a lot, but. Do you think you can be a good leader and not really like people that much? No. No, I don't. I think um, good leadership involves bringing, you know, people into your orbit and into your vision, into your passion. You can't do that unless you talk to people and communicate with them and interact with them. So if you don't like people, you can have the best systems, you can have the best IT, you can have the best AI. For me, it's people that that drives success because you control all of those things that help you manage your business. And there are a lot of aids now to help you manage your business, to get data out of your business so you can make better decisions because you understand more about them. But ultimately, decisions need to be made by good human beings and good human beings who interact with other good human beings and get the best out of them are the best leaders. But you would have seen a bunch of bad human beings lead big companies. I don't know, I've seen a bunch of them, but I've seen them, and I don't know whether they're bad. I think, I think you know, identify there there are some deficiencies in some people. Like not all people are are all things to all people. I'm not. And you ask me what I'm not good at. If you ask other other people, they might tell you things that um, no, don't, they all don't say occur, don't occur to me. But they all say marriage. <laughs> <laughs> they do say marriage. Well, well, I've got the track record, so <laughs> it's pretty agrees. hard to pretty hard to ignore that. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes people who I think are not good leaders get to the top because there are so many opportunities. You know, if you look at, you know, how do terrorist organisations begin and how do they thrive and how do their leaders remain such when the consequence of what they do is so horrific? But it happens. You know, it happens in the 30s in Europe. It's how does that happen? Good people walk past. Yeah, yeah. I want to just um, finish by asking you a couple of questions about um, women and leadership. You and I talked about it the other day, and you you talked quite you're quite interesting on where the club's gone in in female leadership, certainly around the AFLW, and also in tackling the race issue um, at the club. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you've done and what perhaps you've learnt over your career on both of those issues? Well, more specifically in relation to the race issue at Collingwood, we did have an issue which we hadn't dealt with. And um, we, or prior to my arrival, we commissioned a report called the Do Better Report, which had a series of recommendations. And it was my job to work through those recommendations. We implement them. And um, what we did, we set up for the first time in Australia, a, a true truth-telling process with the assistance of um, people from the RMIT University and um, uh, Department of um, Innovative and Restorative Justice. So it's it's another way of tackling the issue. And I sat in on a number of those, in fact, all of those truth-telling sessions with people who came in and explained the hurt that they felt as a result of actions perpetrated by the club or individuals associated with the club. 
And what impressed me in the sense that it made an impression on me was that the deep hurt that was felt, whether or not it was intended by the person who said what they said or did what they did, that became irrelevant. It was understanding the hurt that was suffered. And by understanding that, by developing the concept of not just hearing but deep listening leads to a level of understanding which allowed me then to make an apology that was received as a meaningful apology. And that really helped a lot of people who had been disaffected and estranged from the club feel safe to come back to the club. And in our new redevelopment, which we we had a $15 million government grant, we've built a dedicated cultural room for all our First Nations players and people who have worked for the club where we've recognised that history. Um, I've travelled around the country to communities um, to talk about the work we're doing at Collingwood. We've talked to two other AFL clubs about the work we've done at Collingwood because I don't want just to be Collingwood. I want it, and I don't actually want it just to be football clubs. I want to get it out into the community, into all sorts of organisations. So we've made some progress on that. But, um, you know, the war against discrimination and racism is never over. You've got to go to work every day and, and keep that in your mind as something that you must deal with and confront. But we've made a good start at Collingwood and I, I am really proud of that. I'm very glad that we won the AFL Premiership and I'm really proud of the work we've done to make us a better club off the field. In relation to female leaders, one of the one of the best things we've ever done at Collingwood is develop our AFLW team and those athletes provide so much inspiration. They're, they're amazing. One of my first duties when I became president was to attend and present the jumpers to our AFLW team and just the passion and energy that they conveyed to talk to their parents who had their daughter playing for Collingwood and saying to me, I never thought my child could play for Collingwood. I have three daughters. And now they're there at the at the night and they're there at every game watching their their daughter run around in black and white stripes. And just so important and so overdue and it's got so much potential. You know, we need a we need a longer season, we need to work to that. We need more professionalism. Um, the athletes need to be paid better than they are now. We need better venues and facilities. We're all working towards that. They're an integral part of our success. Our our female leaders, and our, we have a mixture of male and female leaders who are involved in that program, but, you know, we also um, have very talented people throughout the club. I have three female members on my board of seven. Um, the executive ranks include not an equal number of women, but, you know, people in culture, our head of communications, um, head of our women's program now, some, uh, someone we recruited to take over men and women's football programs cross, cross both, very talented person who's worked at um, two other clubs before. If you ask me whether leadership identifies with any one gender, well, it, it just doesn't and I've never, ever believed that and it goes back to those nine days that we spoke about where, you know, I worked with Amanda and I saw the the leadership and the skill in, you know, people like Liz and Layla who, who were just outstanding people. Leadership doesn't choose any gender. I think the qualities, the things I've attempted to convey in our discussion can live in anybody, but more so in those who 
really want to work at it and really want to be a good leader. So do you want to be led or do you want to be a leader? You make that decision pretty early on. If you want to be a leader, learn the skills. That is a great point to end on. Jeff Brown, I know you've got a bit of a fight ahead of you and I know you are confident of winning the fight ahead of you and let's hope that uh, there's a contestable uh, year on the football field and that we don't just see a straight run for Collingwood all the way home to the flag. Well, I'm I'm very grateful to your comments on the first point. The second one, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to be trying to, to street this one in and uh, I'm confident that um, however well we did last year, we will be better this year because every year we need to get better. And um, if we're better, then the others need to be quite a bit better. So let's see what happens. I'm going to let you have the last word. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. <laughs>